Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and I'm with Audrey Waters. It's the 11th of February, 2012, and we're gathered together again for another week of EdTech News. How are you, Audrey? I'm good. You're making some changes. I am making some changes. I'm very excited. It sort of dawned on me when I was at Educon, and I think it was a I was talking with Alec Koros, and he said, wow, you're writing, like, everywhere. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, and I'm exhausted. And so I'm very excited that, um, that thanks to a research project I'm going to be undertaking for Mozilla, a research and writing project, I'm actually going to be writing mostly on hack education um, instead, of, instead of everywhere, which is exciting for me. Well, good. It is interesting because this week you certainly seem to be focusing on software and hacking, and my guess is this is the trend. Um, I think that, that those were certainly sort of the things that were on my mind um, a lot. This week also seemed to be on the phone a lot with different companies based on news that will be coming out next week. So um, lots of actually, next week is going to be a very interesting week in terms of education news. Not that this week wasn't, but... Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> so, um, okay, uh, web deconstruction with Hackasaurus. This is something I think Richard Stallman would love. Tell, tell us why. Well, I, I think that this is a, a really great tool. And so the work that I'm, I should explain, the work that I'm doing for Mozilla is that they're, they're really making some efforts, um, I think, to, to think about what it means to be web literate and to help give people people the skills and support support initiatives that are in the skills for sort of making a web literate world. And Hackasaurus is a tool that they use, um, that they've developed to help. Um, it, I, wouldn't, I don't know if you can quite call it teaching kids to code, but what it does is it sort of peels back the layer of HTML and makes it easier to view the source code um, in the web page, and then actually play around and remix what's on a web page. So you can sort of take the New York Times, for example, and change all the, uh, you know, with Hackasaurus, you can sort of change all the headlines, uh, switch around all of the photos, and then republish um, your sort of remixed, uh, to your remixed page. So I think it's a really good tool for getting kids to think about how the web is built, um, and let them see that they can actually um, they can do they can sort of do similar things themselves. Well, the free software geek in me loved this idea of seeing the code, being able to remix it, and then republish. So let's segue from that to this: how to teach web building to everyone. Yeah. Well, I mean, and this is you know I think that this year there's been so much buzz, um, partially because of Code Academy, about people learning to program, and I think that. One of the problems with sort of a vague or without without actually having a project that you're working on building, it's very hard to sort of know what you want to do in terms of programming. Um, and so, um, what I what what Mozilla is asking me to research is is there is there a need for something like Scratch, right? So that's the, this, that's the wonderful tool from MIT that helps kids think about computational thinking. So is there a comparable is there a need for a comparable tool for HTML5? Um, and so HTML5, I should say, is it's not just HTML. It's HTML, um, CSS, and some JavaScript, too. So there, is some, there are some programmatic features to HTML5. 
Um, but I'm, it's, it's great. I'm gonna, I've got a long list of people that um, I want to talk to about thinking about, um, sort of thinking sort of practically what would this tool look like, what, how technical would it be, um, and then also sort of pedagogically, right, how do you teach, how do you teach um, web building, and is that different than teaching computational thinking, something that Scratch does? So I rarely disagree with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure what I'm going to say is a disagreement, but I think there was something really interesting occurred to me as you as I read this piece. Um, the the next one we're going to talk about is uh, EdTech Amnesia, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm going to raise a warning flag here for EdTech Myopia, and uh, um, I'll tell you why. Because I think it's really appealing and really attractive to talk about um, teaching computer science or teaching programming and and how you do it and the best ways to do it. But I don't think that those discussions actually do anything to shift or change education. And in part because I don't think best practices ever convert into narrative shifts in terms of how we think about teaching and learning. And so I'm really intrigued by kind of the energy and the um, determination that go into this kind of a discussion, which reminds me so much of the open source conversations I've had over the last five years that don't end up actually having any impact at all. That's that's actually, I mean, I think that that's actually a really... Uh a really important thing to think about. I mean, and it's one of the things I've been thinking about too, when we think about where oftentimes, um, I mean, very school, very few schools offer computer science, like what I would call a computer science class. Um, they might offer some technology um, app application usage, but computer science is actually not very widely taught. And oftentimes the, the things that do happen, they happen in after school, um, and sort of after-school projects or other sorts of um, weekend group activities. And so this is actually another piece of what I've been thinking about as well, is sort of where are we seeing the shifts, um, some, some of these shifts occur, and what happens when all of our energies for, um, for innovative programs and then also ones that are sort of really thinking about the t- how the teaching and learning happens, what happens if those are just happening in after-school programs and at libraries, um, is that sort of what? What are the implications where when when that happens? I'm not sure that's answering quite what you said, but um. well, no, I, th- I I'm seeing this a lot in the ed reform movement. Having run the Future of Education interview series now for five years, it's becoming kind of intriguing to me that we have all of these places where there's really good practice. Mm-hmm. But one place having really good practice never seems to really magnify into a larger shift in thinking. And the conclusion I've come to is that uh, in our desire to identify a better curriculum, we're just mirroring this thought process of imposing a curriculum on top of um, institutions or individuals. And that... Uh, what we really need to be thinking about is changing who builds the curriculum. You know, instead of the practice, the process. Right. And uh, this is a deep conversation, and it's interesting. I just kind of wanted to raise the red flag a little, which is, you know, I spent five years doing open source software and education, and then at the O'Reilly Open Source 
open what is it open source con well it wasn't that it was what i don't know whatever i spoke at. <laughs> <laughs> you know my talk was you know um uh, why open source software hasn't changed education and it was interesting a lot of us went into the open source movement i believe seeing it as a vehicle for shifting how teaching and learning took place mm -hmm. but by describing the better practices found that it really didn't actually impact anything and i'm uh, i'm let's let's kind of merge this with the the edtech amnesia discussion right the beginning of my open source my interview series was open source and education and i interviewed richard stahl and eric raymond brian bellendorf all kinds of well-known people in the open source world and one of the really intriguing pieces was that even though it was this, an interview series on open source software and education, none of them had actually had their open source or programming experiences inside a traditional education institution. Right. Which raises a couple of fascinating ironies, you know, one of which is trying to think about computer science in a traditional curriculum. Like you said, is that really where it takes place? And the second is Silicon Valley thinking that they are going to now change formal learning. Right. Where well, we've got you've got all these CEOs who didn't graduate from school who didn't learn what they learned in school. Yeah, I mean and you know the uh, the, the 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 piece that I wrote about amnesia was sort of um, uh, was a result of a number of stories that um, and blog posts that I read. One one of which was Dan Meyer wrote a really really interesting post this week about what Silicon Valley gets wrong in terms of math education. And he was, you know, he was making the argument um, a, that sort of this technical, the sort of technical solution that Silicon Valley is always going to offer, sometimes it, like, it just misses, like it absolutely misses the point. And the wonderful thing was over on Hacker News, which is, I would say, a, a discussion forum primarily populated by programmers and Silicon Valley tech types that they were sort of they, they sort of missed the discussion they sort of missed his point so much that they were they were actually arguing sort of why um, mathematical notation on the on the you know on the computer sort of is easy to do and um, talking about sort of talking about n n notation and the ways in which we can sort of better um, sort of better create programs for writing math notation and truly, truly missing what what Dan was talking about, which was education and sort of how do you teach sort of the conceptually, how do you teach fractions conceptually, not how do you enter fractions efficiently on your computer. Well, this brings together a lot of things that we've talked about. Um, I think there was a comment in in Dan's. It was either in your piece, I think it was in your blog post, where somebody said, you know, this is like a really big hammer looking for a nail, mm -hmm. right? It's the, it's the technology solution looking for another nail, uh, which reminded me a lot of the sort of the, you know, the Apple textbook initiative. You know, uh, we have a solution looking for a problem, right? right? And, and this whole sense of, are a lot of these discussions just red herrings, I mean, do they exist at a level that's not really that productive, not really that disruptive, but they involve a lot of people very actively who don't have to think very deeply to get to this place, which was sort of our ignoring Papert theme? Yes. So what's the, what's the answer? What, 
What can we be doing here to make this a better conversation? Well, I, I mean, I, I want to add to that too. It was it was interesting to sort of see who engaged with me on Twitter, um, and some of the responses from in, from technology it, ed tech investors that really did say, "Oh yes, you're you're wrong. It is totally different now because for the first time ever, we're thinking about computers and personalized learning." And I thought, really, go read Papert, please. Like, please. Don't even don't ever talk to me again <laughs> until you've until you've sort of done your done your homework because um, I do think that there is some there is this sense right now in Silicon Valley that oh my gosh um, wow technology and education is 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 new and I and I think that in terms of making it a better conversation I think that there's so many different factors involved right now as well where we're seeing. Um, I think that the amnesia also is occurring partially because of the, the rapid turnover in a lot of young teachers who don't stay in the profession and who don't come to the profession perhaps with um, a background in thinking about teaching and learning. Um, and I think that so I think that we're losing the we're sort of we're losing the longer history of what's happened in education technology, but we're also sort of losing the losing a long a long history of thinking about the history of education. And Silicon Valley has a very negative view of teachers. Very negative. I know that people say, oh, you know, we, we never say that Khan Academy is meant to replace teachers. But if you look at the, you know, if you look at the tenor of the conversations in Silicon Valley, they are very, very anti-teacher. So it feels as though there, this is a cognitive trap, right? We've talked about this before. This sort of sense that we're going to come in, we've had success in other places, we see the world through a certain lens and we believe that we're going to do something no one else has been able to do. You're trying to bring at least the history of educational technology to the fore, if not the deeper history of pedagogical thinking. Right. So if we see this bubble, right, if we see kind of this, with some clarity, this bubble coming of a belief in solving, a lot of money being invested, not likely to actually make differences or changes, you know, where we put our energy. <laughs> oh, well, there's the, there's the question. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I mean, I think that one of the important things to do is actually to, to and one of the things that I try to do is help build some of these bridges. Because, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think necessarily that people, I mean, I mean, I don't want to paint anybody who's building an education technology startup right now as sort of ignorant or, or malicious or necessarily sort of a money-grubbing, um, it's, it's not a money-grubbing, get-rich-quick scheme for folks. I mean, I think people do, people do want to make a difference. I mean, look at, I mean, the, you know, the news that Craig Silverstein left, Con, or left Google this week for Khan Academy, I think is an, that's a pretty interesting and important shift in the Silicon Valley culture that, you know, here's a man who was, you know, Sergey and uh, Sergey and Larry's very first hire. He's been with the company for 13 years, and he's he's leaving to join an education startup. And probably, I mean, I don't know him, but probably because he wants to make a difference. He wants to do something that's good for education. And so I think we have to sort of work to sort of build these bridges between the education and the technology side of the spectrum because I think that it, they are very different cultures having conversations in isolation. But do those people in the 
venture startup arena even want to have the conversation? <laughs> well, um, some some do. I think I think I think some do. I think, but I think some find it difficult to have conversations with folks like you or I because I think we're going to ask we're going to ask questions that they um, that they haven't. It's not that they haven't even sort of been prepped for. Like it's very easy to be prepped for the question sort of what's your revenue stream or um, you know how do you plan to market your product. Those are the questions that they're used to ask having to answer for investors, but I'm not sure that they're used to sort of a deeper, and they're probably used to asking deep questions about their technology infrastructure, right? How do you plan to scale um, your infrastructure? But I don't know that they're, that, that they're accustomed or have thought about answering questions from educators. Um, and I think some are open to it, I think some, but I think that some, some are resistant to it. So uh, there's a, there's an additional irony here for me, which is, you know, having watched at least some portion of this, having had Larry Cuban on my show a couple of times, whose book you reference, having had the next best thing to Seymour Papert on the show several times, Gary Steger, you know, I can't claim to have the full perspective that I think you and I would both like us each to have, but I feel like I have at least some perspective, and and. The, one of the ironies for me or the intriguing piece here is that there is something really significant going on right now with education and technology. And to me, it's the reminder that learning is social. Yeah. And that does feel to me as though it really could make a huge difference. But it has a lot less to do with revenue streams and venture financing than it does with sort of rethinking how we approach education as a whole. Well, I mean, and then, too, I would add that it actually, it actually, if, if you say the hot new thing, like this is, you know, sort of if, like if you say the powerful thing right now is social, um, learning is social, that's very, that's really sort of two steps away from building a Facebook app, which isn't exactly what, I don't think that's exactly what we're talking about. And so I think that, um, I think that even some of the things that we can see as being, profoundly different now or sort of still it's very easy to sort of um, push those into the obvious places where that would happen in in the consumer tech world which is you know again sort of build a Facebook app right social learning that must mean um, sharing your notes on Facebook so maybe the thing to do is just to give a message to all those out there who are toiling in obscurity working on real core ways of rethinking education who are, who maybe aren't getting the glitzy yes. attention or money hang in there <laughs> we believe in you exactly and, and, and we'll talk to, i mean and I, you know like that's that's like i said i spent a lot of time on the phone this week talking to talking to teachers and talking to startups and i'm always happy to to get on the, i mean i even i even talked to Zach Sims from Code Academy and I said really mean, awful things about his startup. And <laughs> we still, you know, we had it out on the phone this week. So it's all good. How funny. Okay, I guess more to come. Um, <laughs> what, 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 tell us about the pluses and minuses of the new Wolfram Alpha Pro. Well, I, I, think, Wolf, I think that Wolfram Alpha tool is fascinating. Um, I think that what, what Stephen Wolfram has sort of envisioned it with his computational knowledge engine is a very is a very different way of thinking about search right i mean you know thinking about google you know google search is looks at 
what the content of web pages and returns the, what it thinks are sort of the most appropriate web pages based on your query. But the Wolfram, the Wolfram Alpha, it, it, it thinks of search in a very different way. And I should note that Wolfram Alpha is partially what powers Siri, right? The new voice search on um, the the new voice um, on the on the latest iPhone, um, and part partially because it's it has this, it's it's. And this ties back into what Dan Meyer was talking about too. It's supposedly like taking natural language and the way in which we communicate as humans and then divining what that means and giving us the answer that we want. So it's not the list of the 10 best links in which you might find the answer that you're looking for, but it really is the, link that, the answer that you want and interpreting that through how you would input it in, into uh, a search box. So what they've done this week is that they've started to crack open um, some of the some of the tools under the hood with a pro account, um, you're able to sort of upload your own data. Um, you can um, download some of the Wolfram Alpha data as well, and it gives you gives you sort of a, another opportunity to do sort of some of your own hands-on data analysis, um, which I think has the potential to be pretty powerful. Um, unfortunately, I think that there's still a lot of limitations. Um, both in terms of the way in which Wolfram Alpha licenses their stuff, they, this is a very closed proprietary technology, right? This is the antithesis of what we were talking about with open source. Um, and also the fact that a lot of the data that's out there is, is a mess, and it's very hard to, to sort of upload things and actually have the Wolfram Alpha tool tell you anything of interest. But you were ready to get your credit card out in well, the same way that you yeah. bought an iPhone. <laughs> I was ready. I mean, I was ready to get my credit card out, partially because, I mean, you know, one of the other places that I write is for O'Reilly Radar, and I, I do spend a lot of time thinking about data and what does it mean, um, sort of how, how, how are we going to come to terms and make meaning from all of this data that, um, that, that is, um, you know, in our worlds right now. And I thought that Wolfram Alpha would be a really, if, if I could actually, if I could wield Wolfram Alpha, that seems like a very, very powerful tool. But like I said in my story, I went to the Department of Education's open data website, and of 110 data sets, I couldn't get any of them to work, which I don't think is just, I don't mean that as um, a slight um, Wolfram Alpha. Um, it's also, hey, Department of Ed, you know, do a better job <laughs> with your cleaning up your data. But uh, but I think that there's we still have a long ways to go before we can actually democratize data science tools in that way. I think that the, the uh, it's not quite there yet. So what we're really looking for is some uh, outlying uh, high school CS teacher who who takes all of his students and helps them run through all these data sets and report on why they don't work, right? <laughs> Something like that. Okay, Jeff. So Jeff Elkner, we're calling your name. <laughs> and if you don't know who Jeff Elkner is, look him up. Okay, so uh, science, software, carpentry, and the disciplined hack. What are you getting at here? Well, this is – so, I mean, like I've been thinking a lot this week about, um, about sort of how – like what? Do, what do we even talk about when we talk about computer science and software engineering? And one of the things, you know, I think that one of the things I realized when I was at Educon was that CS, a lot of the CS teachers that I was listening to were sort of working with the working with the notion that students in their CS classes were going to 
sort of grow up to be um, computer scientists and grow up building programs for others. And I think that what is more likely true is that people people need to program for themselves. And I think that if you're if you're if you're building something for yourself, that's a as a as a programmer, that's a very different. It's a very different thing than building, um, than building building software software engineering for other people. And so Greg Wilson, um, who has uh, who teaches uh, who has a teaching uh, company called Software Carpentry, asked me to help him think through sort of how he's how he's teaching computer science. And he teaches it he teaches programming to scientists, um, which is fascinating to me because. You would assume, or I think stereotypically, you would assume that scientists have a rigorous background in sort of math and um, clearly science. But when it comes to engineering and tech skills, you know, there's also this gap in knowledge. And so he's trying to, he's, and for scientists, there is, you know, using software engineering is sort of a, it's like a necessary evil. Um, it's, it's like statistics class. Um, or like statistics, so you, you have to you have to sort of use it in your field, and so he sort of he wants help sort of thinking through how best how best do you teach uh, how best do you teach programming? What do you teach in terms of programming? If you have a limited amount of time in a blended learning situation, um, with giving folks enough skills so that they're able to sort of hack together things that make their work easier. Okay, so you're getting paid for this, right? I'm getting paid for this. Okay. I'm not, so I can give free advice and not be responsible for the outcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this reminds me of homeschooling. Yeah. Right, which is uh, people taking their children out of the traditional school system and then completely duplicating the school environment at home. In fact, duplicating many of the things that were arguably the reasons for taking them out of the school system. This is the argument you would hear unschoolers make, which is why recreate school at home when you have so many richer possibilities. I remember learning Paradox, the mm -hmm. relational database program. Uh -huh. it, uh, it, was, it was like finding gold. I mean, it was this unbelievable brain explosion I had. I stayed up for three days straight without any sleep reading every word of the manuals because I could see all of the possibilities of how knowing how to use a relational database was going to change everything I did. I never took a class. I even wonder if the concept of class fits with how people actually learn programming. I, I know. See, I mean, and these are the things that I've been just absolutely stewing on this week as well. Um, and Oh, I wish I could talk about some news that's going to happen next week. But um. <laughs> <laughs> you, you keep teasing us. By the time this recording comes out, I hope it'll be so much okay. closer. But we can't wait. Okay. I know. Again, I need okay. the caveat here is I need to say that you know I'm not you know I'm not getting paid for my opinion here, and I may be completely wrong. But and I am not a programmer. I'm a hacker. Well, see, that's me too. But it just and it just seems like I can't imagine learning one concept a week to program. Well, and I think that, I mean, I think that, again, part of the things that, one of the things that I always ask is sort of, and this is, again, why the class, why thinking about classes, I think, quickly falls apart if we're talking about, uh, um, or, or it can quickly fall apart, because you're working, I mean, for me, would you, I would imagine that these scientists all have different projects that they're working on, and there are probably different ways in which they're like, I know that this, 
you know, I'm, I've got this um, sort of set of data and I'm having to do a bunch of manual stuff. If I could just write a script that would sort of automate it every night, like that's what I need. And like that, you know, um, and so it's, it's actually, it's sort of very project focused. It's not sort of like I need, I'm sort of, I'm sort of fascinated by, um, fill in the blank with, with a never with a programming language or a concept. Um, but it is sort of a specific, there's a specific goal, which is I know that I'm being grossly inefficient with my practices and I know that there's a way to automate it. Um, but I just don't have the skills to do that. Again, I, uh, this is off the cuff and maybe going too far afield, but it feels to me like the the core um, value or characteristic needed at that point is the is the willingness to become a hacker mm-hmm. rather than to take a class. And it's almost as though, like we've talked about this a lot in my Future of Education interview series, which is engagement trumps content. Yes. And you have to have some experiences which allow you to feel the hope that you can actually do something. And it doesn't really matter what that first thing you do is. It's the fact that it actually gets you to a place where you believe, oh, I can actually hack this. Right. If I just, if I just learn enough. And I wonder if that's not really the core value more than the understanding of the programming language. Although, on the flip side of that, I would say that there does have to be some core understanding so that you can sort of, so you can, you can actually apply that, that sensibility to, to everything you do. And so that it's not just, oh, well, I've solved this problem, um, but that you can actually, that you're able to sort of have that learning sort of go forwards and backwards and um, in what in what you undertake, but how I looked that, at that software. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, was, but how? But right. But how? But how? But yeah. You know, once you, you know, I think you're right. Once you, once you start talking about a, a curriculum that way, it does get difficult. I mean, I think it does seem because you're always, but you know, curriculum is is, um, it does sort of bind and restrict the the content. I mean, that by definition, right. I've been reading Roland Barth this week. Oh, and well, there, that explains a lot. <laughs> of course, that explains a lot. But it's just another list. It's, yes. it's this sort of easiness of making a list. I looked at that software carpentry uh, topic list, and I wanted to yawn. Yeah. Right? I mean, it was, okay, so that's not what gets me going. It's this sense that I can actually accomplish something and that I can – that I, I mean, hack becomes such a good word here. Yes. Um, Anyway, and I, but I, I don't think this is isolated to programming. I actually think there's a deeper lesson here. Um, you know, it's the it's the lesson of the self learner. It's the lesson of the autodidact. It's the it's the lesson of how do we really learn? And we just I think continue to explore it as we look through these stories. Well, and I think that that's sort of why I wanted to frame that in thinking about discipline, right? Because you know, academic discipline, the way that academic disciplines are set out now, right? Some people will never learn programming. It, if, if you think about the discipline, like the, the the separation of disciplines, um, partially because it just doesn't fit right. It doesn't fit into the curriculum, um, and that seems to be troubling. And then partially too, I, I worry about I worry about when when we're what happens if we sort of are moving forward with with making these assumptions that anybody who's doing the sort of informal learning or sort of extracurricular learning has to be disciplined. 
um, sort of what does like what assumptions are we actually making about learners and their 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 motivation um, and their commitment? And I don't know. I, and I, I don't know. I guess I don't know. Sort of how do we best support so that everybody can sort of become a motivated learner? Is it is it just as easy as sort of giving people things that they want to do? I don't know. Well, I think that's a really critical point, which is we've our cultural narratives have been around discipline in the sense of taking instruction. Yes. You know the classic cartoon in Waiting for Superman of a teacher pouring knowledge into the student's head. Right. I mean that became kind of a flashpoint for a lot of us. So the 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 new narrative or the resurgent narrative of the self-directed learner is one we're kind of grappling with here, and recognizing that <clears throat> the list making, kind of top-down hierarchical mandating of learning isn't really how that takes place. And it's not how those open source software guys coded. And it's not likely to be how those data sets are going to get evaluated and improved. It's probably not going to come through a traditional learning environment. Right. Lots to keep talking about. Okay, so let's talk about uh, the EdTech news. Yes. Um, your first story is the is the change the, the waivers for ten states by President Obama. Your, your sense of the impact of that? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that um, you know, I mean, I think that No Child Left Behind has clearly been um, sort of has instituted sort of a lot of really dismal things. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a big opponent of of standardized testing and high stakes standardized testing. Um, and so I think that no, no child left behind certainly that's been its big legacy, but I think that I think that the waivers are sort of a, like a let's wait and see with the waivers. I think that in some ways, as Valerie Strauss from the Washington Post said, there are we're really just changing um, we're we're just changing sort of President Bush's vision for President Obama's, and so that you know the the ways in which these states have got waivers is actually by agreeing to a lot of the Obama, Obama administration's policies, which it's not as though they just sort of um, ollie ollie awesome free, no one has to do standardized testing anymore, which is, <laughs> you know. Right. Well, there's that, and that intriguingly sort of parallels this sense of, of not understanding that trading one vision of mandated education for another is not actually reform. Right. But because it's still somebody at the top making decisions, right? Uh, you know, I had a, I did an interview this week with Alan Blankstein, and I will say probably the most significant book I have read in um, the last several years um, is the book is called The Answers in the Room, and the and the title comes from a quote by Peter Block about how the answer to most problems actually exists within the community. And the essence of a solution is helping the community come together and engage and find the answers within themselves, and that that's a process. And certainly, I feel as though that's what's really missing here is just again these lists and pushing things down. Instead of pushing the process down, we end up pushing the list down. Yeah. Okay, off soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> um, Google Books and the lawsuit. Uh, I haven't really followed that story. Is there anything we need to know there? Well, the you know the uh, last I can't remember when it was middle of the year last year was when 
um, the, the, the judge sort of threw out the, the settlement and sort of back to the drawing boards. And what's, what's been interesting to watch as the, as the suit sort of now begins to move forward is that it feels very much like the, actually the landscape for, digital, for digitizing books has completely changed. This lawsuit dates back to, I think, I want to say 2004, um, when the publishers, uh, the publishers and the and the authors guild uh, challenged challenged Google's digitization efforts, and it's so interesting now that when we look at sort of the the fear was sort of Google will have a monopoly over over, over ebooks, and like think when we think of it now that seems so far from the case. I mean, and I mean we should talk about the the, the penguin uh, penguin pulling its book books from libraries because really the problem right now seems to be Amazon um, and and perhaps and perhaps Apple and so it's just interesting sort of the, the speed with which the courts move that the actual the, the, the question of, of Google sort of being the dangerous force for for ebooks um, and for publishers is it, it's almost sort of laughable at this point so I imagine that's what Google, Google is going to do sort of drag their feet in the courts and I think it'll, I'm, I don't, I think the things will probably just sort of go away, this, this particular lawsuit. What doesn't seem to have gone away is this question about whether or not notes taken by students in class are the intellectual property of the professors. Yes. This came, this came to my attention last year because there was a professor in Florida who sued uh, an organization for publishing student notes that was in competition with uh, his own publishing of his notes. It, it's kind of weird to think of educators owning the copyright to their teaching. It is very weird. Um, but then it's also, at the same point, I mean, I think part of the problem here is the students selling their notes, which is also, a you know, a, a um, making commercial making commercial use of what you've written in class as a student is also an odd a bit of an odd thing to do. I'm not saying sh- I mean I'm all for sharing sharing your notes, but actually selling your notes um, is is a, is a strange thing as well. Yeah, bizarre on both sides. Um, it certainly raises questions about what is the um, role of transmission of information. Mm-hmm. And, and especially interpretation of information. Right. And does somebody own that? I mean, we think of teaching as being kind of lighting candles and the room gets brighter and we're sharing and whose ideas. I mean, I'm always stunned to discover on, upon rereading a book from several that I've read several years ago, how many of the ideas I've incorporated into my own thinking without actually giving credit yes. in my own mind to the person who originally introduced them to me. So it gets so fuzzy and gray. Can we really be legalistic here? Well, and I think too, I mean, it also raises questions of sort of what are students doing in the classroom, right? Are they, are they transcribing word for word a lecture? And what um, sort of, and how does that, how does that help with their own, cog, you know, their own sort of understanding uh, of, of a particular course? And, and so I think it's, I mean, if, if, if a student just sees itself as sort of a, as a transcriptionist of, of the material that the professor delivered, again, sort of what's happening in the, in the sort of, I, I think it raises sort of interesting questions about sort of practices on the parts of students in the classroom as well. Yeah, or just a reminder that the that whole system of thinking that knowledge gets transferred that way yes. rather than <laughs> actively participating in it. Uh, I, I, we'll move on. <laughs> okay, um, 
So, um, well, let's talk I about my place. Well, well, we, I guess this is jumping around on my list, but well, let's let's talk about um, Pearson and or Pearson. Well, okay, Pearson Penguin. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we haven't we haven't really dealt with Apple this week or with Pearson. <laughs> but let's <laughs> go for it. Well, so. You know, I think it was a couple of weeks ago that uh, that we talked about that the America that the ALA was going to sort of have a sit down meeting with the major publishers and sort of talk about what how to move this conversation forward. Of the big six publishers, um, well, I think now uh, just one of just two of them will actually offer their books as uh, their eBooks as loans to libraries, and that's um, as you know as our as our as literature becomes, um, as, as sort of, as patrons are more interested in eBooks, the fact that you can only get two of the big six is, um, I think, is really a problem. So they had a sit-down meeting, and apparently it didn't go very well, um, because Penguin announced on that immediately, effective immediately, no longer will you be able to check out eBooks through OverDrive um, in libraries, and OverDrive is the is the is the main one of I would say the main distributor for ebook content to libraries in this country. So, um, yeah, I, I think that the and the sort of as people have dug into the the question, actually, the problem the problem according to Penguin wasn't so much wasn't just the um, wasn't just sort of what happens with with ebooks as this sort of a loss of loss of control over their content was that they are very unhappy with the deals that overdrive made with amazon for its kindle for its kindle lending library and so this is a battle about this is a battle between the publishers and amazon that unfortunately libraries and library patrons are sort of at the have the the the, the rough end of it you know, this is you didn't report on this, and I'm not even sure it falls into the category of the things we would normally talk about. But um, we do rent movies from Amazon, and they now have this new process where people can storyboard movies and then get um, feedback on them. Have you seen this yet? I haven't. Uh-uh. It's well, it's the the sort of the fascinating aspect of it is how dramatically easy it is to imagine this radically altering how movies get made. Uh, in the same way that you know that you, now Amazon is publishing books, right? The idea that it's actually very smart to storyboard a movie or do a rough cut of it, post it up, let people watch it for free on Amazon, and then actually, if people like it, get funding from that, which of course Amazon is likely to be involved in. <laughs> to me, was a brilliant move, and of course, this has got to be scaring traditional filmmakers and and um, studios in the same way that Amazon's role in publishing has to be really scaring publishers. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, I mean, I think that there's, there are lots of issues at stake here. And I think that, you know, I mean, I think that clearly that, you know, the, the record industry is, of course, what we, what we look to when we talk about what happens when an industry sort of denies, denies the fact that consumers want digital they want the content digitally, and and the record industry was sort of very slow to sort of wake up to um, to to digitized music, and I think for a long time that's why people people weren't pirating music because they were sort of cheapskates out to sort of stick it in the eye of you know 
uh, Arista Records, but because people love music, and I think people love books in the same way. And I think that it's I think that the that the publishing industry is trying very or is making it very difficult, making it very difficult for libraries, making it very difficult um, for people to sort of get their hands on content. And sort of what will it mean if the sort of what are the implications for um, you know for the industry in terms of in terms of piracy and I think in terms of in terms of the role of the library as well, I think it's it's actually it's quite troubling. So Clayton Christensen is smiling himself to the bank every day, <laughs> having described so so brilliantly this process of how large companies respond to disruptive innovations. Um, so Google, or Google, <laughs> my turn. Blackboard unveils their latest version of the LMS, Blackboard Ocho. Did you actually watch that briefing? Um, <laughs> I, I was going to because I did not. <laughs> I was going to attend the one that um, that they had some te- technical difficulties with, and I did. I did not. Um, We're I'm, snickering because the irony here is having bought <laughs> Illuminate now having Blackboard collaborate as a synchronous platform. They chose to do the briefing in WebEx. What was it? Yeah, WebEx, and I it can't didn't, remember. And it didn't work. And it didn't go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody at Blackboard's going to be mad at me about laughing about that, but <laughs> but still. But anyway, so that was scheduled for later in the day, and I missed it as well. Yeah, I missed it as well, and I thought, you know, I it's it's it actually is interesting to sort of watch watch Blackboard's um, sort of watch Blackboard finally. I mean, and I do mean finally recognize that the user experience in their product is is um, cause for immense frustration. And so um, the new, the new, the new black, the new and improved, improved Blackboard is apparently all sorts of Web 2.0-ish looking. So, bully for them. I, good. <laughs> uh, good news on the uh, Android App Inventor front. Yes. Uh, yeah, this is exciting. I mean, ahead. this is exciting. Google, you know, Google shut down its Google Labs last year, which was was which was really sad because there were a lot of. Um, there were a lot of great little projects housed under experimental projects housed under Google Labs, and one of them was Android App Inventor, which is actually a lot like Scratch. Um, it allows sort of a building blocks to help you build mobile apps, and Android App Inventor sort of got the axe as part of Google Labs being closed. But Google's actually handed the project over to MIT, um, and MIT are, uh, have released the the source code, but they're they're working on having a beta version release for, for release soon. And if you're a teacher who uses Android App Inventor, um, they'd like to hear from you and you're welcome. To, I think you'll get sort of first dibs on your hands on the new, the new Android App Inventor. Okay. And a uh, couple of um, uh, upgrades to products, Zotero, LearnBoost, and ShowMe. Yep. Every, like it's uh, it's always interesting, sort of my trying to figure out which 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 companies to, to highlight each week. But Zotero is an interesting Zotero is a really interesting open source project um, out of um, gosh George Mason no yes George Mason University um, that it's a it's a sort of a, a citation um, bibliography citation tool um, and I love seeing sort of. I love professors who hack on building their own building their own solutions here. So, so Tara, if you if you're a scholar or if, if you do anything in which you have to sort of track on a bibliography, I, I recommend Zotero. Okay, and and we're getting close to end here, uh, but there are some stories we just can't miss. 
So um, the the uh, first one for me is the news out of California on fund, state funding for libraries being axed. Yeah, and I'm, you speechless is I'm, hard to imagine. So let's let's change that. <laughs> well, I mean, I I I, I am. Spe- I mean, I can't imagine of the you know. I mean, I rec I recognize I do recognize that these are difficult financial times for states, but I cannot imagine looking at all of the l- budget items in in the state budget and deciding that you're going to zero out funding for libraries. That boggles my mind. Yeah, I had an interesting conversation with David Lurcher about this, who's who's big in the library world and um, his particular pushes libraries as learning commons. And I think the admission there is that this is not just an external issue, that it also is requiring librarians to rethink their own capacity. Clearly, the skills that we idealize in a librarian are at the heart of thinking about teaching and learning in this new world. But oftentimes it's it's librarians themselves who who don't understand that. Well, I mean, and I I mean, I think that I think too, you know, I mean, I recognize sort of we, we've talked a lot about the the, the library, um, the sort of the library being at the forefront of a lot of these a lot of these sort of digital shifts and community shifts. But I think that what makes me so sad about this is that I've long thought that the library is the community center and the place to go. When, like, if you can't afford to buy a book, you can go to the library and read a book. And so, the fact that in that in tough economic times, that 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 are the, the the locus of sort of community literacy in all of its forms, and I mean that from like li- literally sort of reading and writing to digital literacy to to finding out where you know where in your city you can you you know where you can where you can register to vote to talk to a research librarian about how to you know. How do you, you know, how do you file for a restraining order? Um, where would you go to find that information in a library? It's such an important place for learning and community learning. I just, I really can't believe that the, that the state of California has no option but to, to, to zero out its funding. Now, th- that doesn't mean that libraries will have no funding. No, do they, no. Do they get local funding? There, I, there, there is local funding, and there are, there's, you know, I mean, plenty. There are plenty of sort of federal grant programs that fund different elements and different aspects of what libraries do but under but but under the, in the state of California there's also sort of state funded literacy programs um, that are that are under that as well and so this is a this is actually a blow to literacy in this in the state of California stunning uh, another uh, big piece of news although with um, more limited implications Google's first employee is moving on yeah, this is. Um, I have to say, congratulations to um, Betsy at EdSurge for breaking this story. And like I wrote in my write-up, um, curses to anybody that didn't actually credit EdSurge with breaking that story. Um, it's one of now my- those curses might be directed toward the Wall Street Journal. Well, I, I think that they said some news. I think they called it sort of some newsletter. Um, some newsletter broke the story, and uh, <laughs> and I, it's one of my pet peeves when old media and new media don't you know don't do a good job of sort of citing their sources and with the beauty of the hyperlink it isn't too difficult to you know to to point your readers to www.edsurge.com and give her credit for the story but yes so Craig Silverstein who was the first hire um, the first hire at Google is moving on he's going to Khan Academy where he doesn't even know it's not quite clear what he's doing yet but he said um, that he thinks he'll be programming so 
but he's he's but he's interested he's often described as one of the people responsible for making Google googly and so that it'll be interesting to see sort of what the cultural shift will be in terms of Google if they are losing their lead googly person and also at Khan Academy which doesn't particularly strike me as a very googly place Probably not news, given all that we've talked about textbooks, but it sounds like uh, the use of digital textbooks has actually gone down. Yeah, this is um, this isn't. I mean, I, I don't think it's surprising in some ways either. Um, the the according to the book industry study group, and this is just this isn't these aren't sort of um, numbers from sales per se. This is based on a survey of college students, so I should I should clarify that, but. But those college students reported that they were actually using digital textbooks less this year than they were in 2010. And I mean, there can be a, you know, we've talked a lot about why college students don't particularly like um, e-books yet or e-textbooks yet. But I think it's, it's, um, it's again, a, an interesting reminder that, we, that despite all of the excitement and, and hullabaloo about, um, about digitizing textbooks, that, that students still have a lot of reason to, to buy the print one. And did you report it at some point, and did we talk about how many students report they actually use the textbooks for courses? Um, I remember reporting on something about that a while ago, but I think that you know, I think that I think that students, you know, textbooks are a, a major financial burden for college students, and I think that a lot of them do opt to not to not buy them because I think that they've sat in enough classes before where they've shelled out money. <laughs> A big money, and then never opened it or read just one chapter, or and and so I, I don't think that I think that college students are sort of you know wising up to uh, wising up to sort of how much money they're spending on textbooks, and clearly digital textbooks don't save them money. Interesting. I just I just keep trying to think about my own courses in college, and the use of textbooks, and. And would I, for the ones where I did read them, would I have wanted them digitally? And the truth is, next to me right now are about 30 books piled high because I still like the print and I still like to be able to write in the margins. Yeah, I'm a big, uh, and for me, I mean, my skepticism of, of textbooks is probably, well, come back to dis, you know, the discipline. I, you know, I'm a literature person, and so I, I never assigned textbooks. I never read a lot of textbooks. Um, and so textbooks to me sort of seem like this weirdly artificial sort of thing that I have no interest in. Um, and I, I, do, I do a lot of reading now with a, with, um, in a Kindle, but I, I definitely am a write-in-the-margin person, and it is not, it is not as enjoyable experience um, to do that in a, in a digital textbook yet. I have used the phrase fire your textbooks in several conversations and people respond very positively to it. So if that really takes off, I want credit from the Wall Street Journal for having invented that phrase. <laughs> I'll write them a nasty some, letter if they don't link to your website. And <laughs> some good news, Google Summer of Code is launched again. Yes, uh, this, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of the Summer of Code uh, project is a great one. This is a great opportunity to get um, students, and I should say here that, that you don't actually have to be a CS student either. I mean, you need some programming skills, but you don't actually have to be a CS student. And they put you to work on coding programs with different open source organizations around the world. I mean, and that includes that includes places like Wikipedia, um, and uh, the the folks the folks from the from the open source office at Google are 
among the finest of, of Googlers. So Good. And also, arguably good news, uh, which I wasn't aware of until I read your notice on it, is this uh, Harvard Conference on Teaching and Learning. <laughs> yes, this one I think elicits some chuckles because um, finally, finally uh, higher ed realizes that there's actually perhaps a, a problem with a problem with teaching and learning um, at, at the university level. And I think this is probably something that um, most of us who've been to college have realized that, that a lot of our, a lot of the faculty at college are really lousy teachers. Um, and sort of what can we do, what can we do to help make, um, what can we do to sort of help make sure that the teaching that happens at the, at, in higher ed is, is actually um, effective and that it's not just um, folks sort of uh, it's not sort of just relying on the lecture model, which, I mean, I think, although it's possible to, I mean, I think we've probably been and heard good lectures, but really lectures are, are sort of one of the least effective ways to sort of get, um, to sort of help the kids learn. And again, this kind of brings us back full circle to this whole idea of when, when the technology discussions actually lead to discussions of teaching and learning, that feels really healthy. Right, so it feels like the flipped classroom discussions have led us to really talking about teaching and learning, and so the the idea that the core conversation is teaching and learning rather than technology. Yes, you gotta like that. Exactly. Um, is this the first time you've done recommended reading? It is. Did I just ask? It is the first time, and there were, like I said, there were a couple of really, um, there were a couple of really interesting stories this week that that made me think a lot. Um, I think. Uh, Karima Ani from Mathalicious writing about Khan Academy. I thought it was a very bold, what he wrote was very bold. And um, I, watching him be raked over the coals for it, again, by a lot of folks in the Silicon Valley community is sort of unfortunate. Dan Meyer always makes me think a lot. And in fact, I'm having coffee with Dan Meyer this week, so I, I win. Um, oh, good. <laughs> and then, and then. Um, so you have to look at this is a guy you actually have to really look up to. Because <laughs> he's tall. <laughs> so I'm excited. I have to look up to Dan Meyer. Really? He's that tall? Okay. Well, that, I would help. say he's 6'6. Six, six. Wow. Okay. 6'7, six, maybe? Good. Well, I'm excited. We've never met face to face, so that, that's going to be fun. Um, and then George Simmons, who wrote a very interesting piece, I think, about um, he's, um, he's making lots of moves towards, I mean, a sort of a person who's been at the forefront of sort of open education and um, massive online open courses, he's now sort of working into sort of how can we build out um, open analytics and open um, other open frameworks around it. Um, so Im important, uh, important stuff. Good. Well, you do important stuff, Audrey, mm -hmm. and it's most appreciated. So can't wait to hear whatever news is coming out. Oh, it's going to be good. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. We'll look forward to it. Take care, everybody. Have a great week. Thanks.